Our text this afternoon will be Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. This is the word of Almighty God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Pray with me, friends. Lord, I ask that you will open your word, teach us, convict us, and grow us for your glory. And that's our prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You can be seated. I was recently listening to a podcast from a conservative news commentator who would tell you he's a Christian. Turns out he is a, a Roman Catholic, and he was talking about the president's recent visit to the Vatican. And the broadcaster pointed out the hypocrisy of a man like our president claiming to be a strong Catholic while simultaneously championing abortion in America. And if he'd only talked about this in simple terms, you, I might not have been able to see the great problem this man has with an understanding of the faith. I mean, honestly, any faithful follower of the Bible would say that Christians should stand against abortion. We cannot condone, we most certainly cannot champion the taking of lives, the lives of unborn children. But then the news broadcaster added in his own two cents as to what it means to be a Christian. And if I boiled it down for you, what this man said on his little podcast, I would say that his faith amounts to the following. Do good things and you go to heaven. Do bad things and you might not. One of the saddest things that anyone can do to Christianity is to make our faith a system of things to do and things not to do. Every other world religion out there is a system of do's and don'ts. Christianity cannot be like that. Christianity is not like that. We're not. Now hear me carefully. No person is made right with God by doing good deeds. Not one ever. A true understanding of Scripture helps us to see that if we are left to our own best efforts, we all die and go to hell. Our only hope is that the work for our salvation has been perfectly done, finished, by Jesus. Otherwise, we're lost and we're lost forever. You know, there are some people who miss Christianity because they focus on comparing their good deeds to their bad. 
There are others who get the gospel right. There are those who see that salvation is based on Jesus and him alone. But then some of those others can become so focused on rules that they strip the grace of the Lord from all the rest of the lived Christian experience. But if you look at Scripture, even when we see the Bible give us rules for how to live, the rules are never the ultimate and final focus. The rules for Christian living are there to help us live freely, joyfully, for the glory of the God who saved us by grace alone. Yes, they're there to keep us from sin. In in Titus chapter 2, Paul's given Titus a list of things to teach, and it's a big list. It covers do's and don'ts for older men and older women and younger women and younger men and slaves. There were even a couple of reminders here that living the way that God says will help the reputation of the church. If you live like God says to live, it glorifies God in the watching world. But there's got to be something more. Paul wasn't about to make the whole of Christianity about do this and avoid that. Remember, the point of this section is that Paul wants Titus to teach something different than the man-made religion of the people of Crete. And the only way that's going to happen, the only way that's going to happen besides behavioral changes is if the people of Crete get their minds around the glory of the true gospel. And thankfully, that's exactly what Paul's about to have them do. The gospel, word means good news, the gospel is how you and I are made right with God. It reminds us what God has done. It changes our lives in the present, and it points us toward a beautiful future. So whether you're a Christian or not here today, this passage matters to you, and it has something to call you to. So we'll find one point this afternoon in each of these five verses, but let's get started, and let's see a sanctifying gospel. Our first point, be saved. How's that for a point? Simple enough? Point number one, be saved. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Why is grace amazing? Why would we find grace to be amazing? What is grace? Grace is goodness that you can't earn. The grace of God includes both his mercy, meaning God doesn't punish you for bad things you've done, and it also includes God's goodness, God giving you kindnesses that you don't deserve. Grace is a gift given by God. It cannot be earned. It cannot be bought. It cannot be repaid. So strange, I think it is, that Paul would then say to Titus, the grace of God has appeared. Grace is a concept. Grace is an idea. How can grace 
appear. Do you know? I think you do. I think you do. The grace of God that had been hidden in the past has finally, physically, visibly appeared. Grace has come in the form of the Son of God. Jesus Christ reveals the grace of God. You know the story, don't you? In the beginning, God created everything that is. And as part of that creation, God created mankind, men and women, in his image for his glory. And God placed humanity in a perfect place. And he gave them everything they could ever possibly need. But humanity turned against God. We believed the lie of the devil and we decided we shouldn't have to submit to God's rules. Adam and Eve and every human being since then, with the exception of Jesus, turned away from God and chose their own way. It was a way of sin. It was a way that leads to death, destruction, leads to the burning wrath of God. Well, just after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God made a promise. It was an obscure promise, to be sure, but a promise nonetheless. God promised that he would send somebody into the world, born of a woman, who would crush the head of the serpent, the devil. God was hinting at his grace that would one day come. God pointed us toward his grace all through the Old Testament. God promised Abraham he would bless the whole world through one of Abraham's offspring. God promised David that from David's family, God would set a king on the throne who would rule the world forever in perfect justice. In Isaiah, God promised that a servant is going to come who would humbly sacrifice his own life as a way to pay for the sins of other people, sins the servant never committed. But still, all those who heard those promises in the Old Testament age couldn't really grasp what they meant. It wasn't until the time of Jesus that the promise of God's grace became clear. In that time, God entered the world. God's always existed, of course, as a trinity, three persons, yet still one and only one God. God the Son, one of the three persons of the one God, chose to take on flesh, to take on humanity, to be born as a genuinely human baby. Jesus was born of woman. He was descended from Abraham and David, and he was truly God while being truly man. And Jesus came to this earth to be the embodiment, the revealing, the fulfilling of God's promise of grace. So truly, truly, God's grace has appeared. Let me just say to you, we are one Sunday away from the beginning of the Advent season here. Don't you think it's worthwhile to celebrate the appearing of the grace of God? Now, we should do it year-round, just so you know. But over the next season, over the next four Sundays here, we're going to take special moments to remember the story I just told you because it's true. And we will thank God for the grace that was promised and which has appeared. Well, Jesus didn't just be born. He lived a perfect human life. You know, God commands we live perfectly if we wish to please him. None of us can. But Jesus did. 
And then Jesus allowed himself to be put to death as a sacrifice. And in his suffering, in his death, in his resurrection, Jesus paid the full price for all the sins of all of the people he would ever forgive, for all of God's children. And Jesus himself said that if anyone will put their trust in him, if they'll turn from their sins and believe in him, they will have eternal life because of his sacrifice. So yes, the grace of God has appeared. Grace has come in the form of God's Son who humbled himself to be the sacrifice for our sins. It is amazing. It is truly amazing grace. But there's more. The grace of God has appeared, it says, bringing salvation to all. You see that, right? Some of our translations may say that grace has appeared to all, but it makes more sense that the Bible here is saying that salvation has come to all. Now what Paul is saying here, please get it, is that salvation has come to all kinds of people. All of the categories contextually. Right from the first 10 verses of Titus 2, we saw several categories, different types of people. All of those people can be saved by Jesus. Jesus did not only bring grace to Jews or only bring grace to Gentiles. Jesus didn't bring grace for the wealthy but not the poor. So whether you are young or you're old, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're slave, whether you're free, whether you're smart, whether you're dumb, whether you're successful, whether you're a failure, whether you're married, whether you're single, God brought grace to be yours in Jesus Christ. And anyone of any social class or any nationality can receive the grace of God and be forgiven of his or her sins if you will trust the Lord Jesus. That salvation coming to all is a beautiful reminder, Christians, that the last thing we want to do is now that we have salvation, redivide the world based on social, ethnic differences. That's not honoring to the Lord. Today, are you here without knowing that you know God? It's possible somebody in this room doesn't know that, whether they know God or not. Have you here today not yet been forgiven of your sins? Listen, no matter who you are, no matter who you've been, no matter what you've gone through in your past, the grace of God has appeared. God's grace is offered to you freely in Jesus You've lived as a sinner, we all have. But today, if you will renounce your rebellion, your sin against God, and if you'll trust in Jesus alone for your eternity, God will give you his grace. God will save your soul. God will make you his child. God will forgive you your sins if you will put your, care, your soul in the care of Jesus Christ, believing in him, trusting in him and his finished work alone. So I urge you, just as the point says, be saved. And if you are a Christian, praise God for that grace. Doesn't that just make you want to praise God? God's grace is for all kinds of folks. Even people like you and like me. What a loving, gracious, glorious God we serve. God's grace has appeared as another old song says, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. 
I needed someone to wash my sins away, and now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, the whole day long, Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. You ever hear that one before? A couple of you have heard that one before. You know, whether you know that one or not, whether you know Amazing Grace or the other stuff we sing here at PRC, a right response to the grace of God in your life is praise. We thank God. We celebrate that we who had no hope now have hope. As we think of our sin fully forgiven, our hearts should fill to bursting with joy. We deserved hell. We receive heaven because of Jesus. So sing and celebrate and thank God for his grace in Christ. And once you've got the grace of God in Christ, once you see it for the good thing that it is, your life is going to change. Maybe not easily, maybe not quickly, but your life is going to change. So point number two, be sanctified. First be saved, then be sanctified. Verse 12 says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So I once heard a story about a poor farmer. He was both financially poor and he was poor at farming. This poor fellow always lost money. He faced bankruptcy. But then something wonderful happened. A long-lost relative died and willed the farmer a fortune of more than $10 million. That made a splash in his small town. So a reporter came to his house and asked him some questions. The reporter asked the farmer, do you think your life's going to change much now that you've got millions of dollars? Farmer reportedly responded to the reporter, nah, I just think I'll keep on farming till it's all gone. (laughs) Doesn't it sound kind of crazy for somebody to receive a fortune and have no part of his life change? I mean, honestly, y'all would change something if you had 10 million in in the bank, right? Except for those of you who already do. If you do, talk to me afterwards. We need to have a conversation. Uh, How much more should it seem crazy, though, for somebody to receive the glorious grace of God and not have his or her life changed? That makes no sense. We could never do anything to earn salvation. You can never do anything to pay God back for your salvation. That's not the motivation. But if you are a person under the grace of God, God will, he will change your life. The Bible says God's grace has appeared and it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present. This probably is a way that Paul has of summarizing all the points that we saw in verses 1 to 10 for the man and the women, right? A godly person renounces the kind of passions and desires in the world that would lead you away from God. What might that mean? It may mean that you renounce drunkenness. Maybe it means you renounce sexual immorality or enjoying things that are sexually immoral. Maybe it means you renounce gossip or slander. Maybe it means something else for you. But the point is, if you are a Christian, you will fight your urges and fight to put out of your life anything that does not honor God. Similarly, Christians are going to learn to live upright, godly lives in this present age. 
We're going to strive not only to say no to sin, but to say yes to things that please the Lord. Our lives will change. We will strive to be self-controlled, upright. We want godly lives, lives that show us as, I mean, what do we see above? Sober-minded, dignified, faithful, loving, steadfast, reverent. Invested in other people, loving your spouse, loving your children, being pure, being kind, prioritizing your family appropriately, shaping your household appropriately, teaching and speaking faithfully, responding rightly to authority. All of that's there. And in all of it, we work by the grace of God to become people who display the character of God in the world that we live in. So Christians, I want to ask you, have you thought about how gracious God has been to you? Have you remembered God's kindness to you? Do you remember that God promises you joy and blessing when you obey his commands? Ask yourself, Christian, is my life showing the world that I'm a believer? Am I putting off things that dishonor God in what I do and what I think? Am I putting on things that show the world that God is my glorious king. Let the grace of God lead you to right living. Be sanctified. There is a Bible word for the process of growing a little more like Jesus as time passes. And we call that word, we use the word sanctification for that. If you sanctify a thing, you set it apart as sacred or holy There's a sense, by the way, and it's a biblical sense, when a person is saved, he or she is immediately sanctified. Because when you are saved, you are immediately set apart by God as special, sacred, holy to the Lord. But when we talk about sanctification as believers in a doctrinal sense, most often we're talking about the sanctification that is a lifelong process. Let me just ask real quick, how many of you are Christians right now? How many of you live perfectly? Not so much, right? But how many of you are different today than you were a few years ago? That's sanctification. Sanctification is a lifelong process. To be sanctified is to grow. It is to change bit by bit, day by day, step by step. As you live as a Christian, you're always going to find parts of your life that need to be refined. Have you ever found something in your life you felt might use a little refining? (laughs) Yeah. You're always going to find character traits that you need to improve. You'll always be looking to put away sin a little bit more. You always be looking to love Jesus a little bit better. And the good news is your growth in sanctification is a partnership with you and the Lord. God gives you the Holy Spirit of God to live within you, to convict you of sin, to encourage you toward righteousness, to help you understand the word. You know what else God gives you to sanctify you? I want you to take note of this. This is really important. You know what else God gives you to sanctify you? The local church. Other brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, we're here to help each other to take those next steps in our faith. And the good news is also that this process, this sanctification process, it's 
Never what will earn you salvation. Being sanctified, growing in your faith is the result of being saved, not the cause of your salvation. So Christian, love the gospel, rejoice in the gospel, and because you love the Lord who saves your soul, be committed to the process of being sanctified a little more each day. Not in my notes here, but it's t- such a good illustration. David Paulison talks about sanctification, and he says, you know, we have ups and downs, right? You guys ever have some days that are better than other days? Yeah. Paulison says, in a lot of ways, our life is like a yo-yo, up and down. He goes, but you know what? We're like a yo-yo in the hand of somebody walking upstairs, And the best thing we can do in sanctification is shorten the string so that the lows are a little less low as the Lord keeps carrying us up. I think that's kind of cool. Point number three, hope in the return of Jesus. Titus 2.13, hope in the return of Jesus says we are waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's grace has appeared. Our salvation causes us to live in this present life differently. But how do we press on? The world flows against us, sometimes fairly strongly, doesn't it? Any of y'all ever watch the news? (laughs) Any of y'all think about stopping? You ever, you ever check out what people are saying on the social media, on the Twitter, on the Facebook? <laughs> Any of y'all ever talk to people? If you do, you're going to see that those who wish to please God in our world are tending to be going in a different direction from the common culture. You ever feel sort of countercultural? It's hard to live in this world, isn't it? How do we hold on? What will make you able to hold on? The answer is hope will make you able to hold on. If you ever get a chance, reading some of the memoirs, some of the stories of Jews who hid and were in hiding during World War II can be a real help. If you read those memoirs, you see a common theme in their writings because while their circumstances were devastating, they were forced into hiding They were often living in horrible conditions as they tried to avoid being discovered by the Nazis and carried off to the death camps. Somehow these Jews managed to keep up the morale necessary to press on. And if you read their stories, you'll see that a key to many of these families pressing on was the radio broadcast that they would listen to from Allied forces. As families huddled in cellars and in attics and in secret rooms across Europe on the radio that they would smuggle in and keep as secret as they could, they would hear allied leaders saying to them, hey, we're coming. We're not giving up. We're not giving in. We've landed. We're in occupied territory. We're pushing it back. Hold on. We're on our way. And that encouragement, that promise of aid gave the hiding Jews the courage they needed to live one more day. Y'all, we've got a similar hope. 
But our hope is more sure and more solid and more dramatic than that was what was offered over the wireless in World War II. We have the promise of God that someday the Lord Jesus Christ, God our Savior, will return to this earth. There's a day coming when Jesus will put an end to every last bit of darkness that's on the world. There's a day coming when Jesus will finally and perfectly bring heaven to earth. Someday, Jesus is going to raise from the dead all of those who have gone before us in the faith. And all of God's children are going to live forever in perfection with the Savior. Notice two things in this verse that are really significant. First is the appearing of the glory. Your Bible might translate it that we're awaiting the glorious appearing, but again, it's probably better the appearing of the glory. Years before Christ, the grace of God was a mystery. Then when Jesus arrived on earth in his incarnation, the grace of God appeared. But the Bible tells us that Jesus is going to come back. He will physically return, and it won't just be a picture of the grace of God when Jesus comes back. When Jesus returns, he is going to be the visible appearance of the glory of the Almighty God. In bright, blazing holiness, Jesus will return and reveal to all people the utter beauty and the utter terror of the holiness of God. Jesus will put an end to the enemies of God, and he will bless the children of God with the greatest prize ever imaginable, an eternity to see and celebrate and savor the glory of God. And nothing could ever make us happier than this. Also note in this verse... Paul makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is God. What does Paul call Jesus here? Our great God and Savior. You know what the Greek word is there for, for the word great in great God? I just think it's cool. The Greek is mega. Jesus is our mega God and Savior. Yeah, there's some cultic world religions out there where there's a view of Jesus that he's maybe not God or maybe not the one big true God. He's little God. He's mini God. This passage is absolutely clear that if you wish to understand Jesus Christ correctly, you must understand that Jesus is God, the God, the one true God, the mega God, not a mini God. And any person of any religion who denies Jesus is God any person out there that says Jesus is less than God or a lower form of God or sub-God denies God. If you are to be saved, you must see that Jesus is no mere man. He is a true man, but he's not a mere man. He is the very God who created the universe. And this means, my friends, that Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, Buddhists and Hindus and atheists and agnostics and Wiccans and all the other folks who deny Jesus or degrade Jesus, they will find themselves under the judgment of Jesus when he returns. To refuse Jesus is to refuse God's grace which has appeared and is to attack God's glory which will appear. Today, don't be in that category. Christians, it's good for you to live with a mind set on eternity write it down somewhere in your house where you see it remind yourself this world as it stands is not your home at least not 
in its present state. Jesus is going to come again. He's going to come and set things right. And we are awaiting that great day when the glory of God is ultimately, perfectly, finally revealed in his Son. Look forward to the day when our hope is fulfilled in Christ. You know, from my own experience, and maybe you have them too, I think that Christians today are focusing less on heaven and less on the return of Jesus than days past. Do you all feel like that too? Some of it makes sense, by the way. It makes sense that some folks have been turned off by people arguing about prophecies or arguing about the order of the next events in human history. There are some who unfairly accuse those who think about eternity as escapist. But the word of God's absolutely clear here. You are supposed to find your life strengthened as you live in the light of the hope of the return of the Savior. This world as it stands in its sinful state is not our home. We are passing through it like pilgrims. Now, don't get me wrong. Church, we work in the power of the Spirit of God to see the church grow, to see the gospel spread, to see the darkness and the impact of sin on the world pushed back. We do. We absolutely do. And the church will gloriously succeed in carrying the gospel around the globe and in changing the world to the glory of Jesus. That's going to happen. We never should refuse to work to see the world changed. But we have a much better, much more glorious home awaiting us than the one you live in right now. And all of our hope is to be realized when the Savior comes back. So hope in the return of Jesus. Fourth point. Glorify your Savior. Glorify your Savior. Verse 14 Speaking of Jesus Christ, that was the end of the last part there, great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In many ways, this point echoes our second point that was verse 12, right? Jesus died to redeem us from lawlessness. He died so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. He died that we would become people who have a zeal, a passion, a joy in doing what is right. Jesus died both to pay for our sins and to purify us, to change us, to make us into a holy people of God. But I want you to see in this look, this concept, this verse, just a little focus here is the little phrase in there, to purify. You see the verse, right? For whom is God purifying a people? To purify for himself a people. Do you see that in the text there? Jesus died for us for himself. Did you hear that? Jesus died for us for himself. Remember this. The ultimate purpose behind the actions of God is always first and foremost God's glory. The glory of God, God's honor, God's holy name is always given in scripture as God's number one priority and the reason God does things. 
The glory and name of God is always behind the things he does. God forgives us, why? For his own name's sake. God saves us for his name's sake. He sanctifies us for his own sake. He will perfectly bring history to a close to God's own glory. You were created by God for God's glory. And if you're saved, your salvation is for the honor of God. And because the glory and honor of God is the reason for your creation, you will find yourself happiest, most fulfilled, if you live doing and feeling and believing the things that God commands. See, we turn from sinfulness and we're zealous for good works because when we do what's right, it glorifies God and glorifying God gives us joy. See, that, that's, that's a good reason to obey, don't you think? Are you guys pro-joy? How many of you would like more joy? How many would like your joy to decrease, a little less joy? I'd like to be less happy. I'd like to be a little more miserable. Any of you? I know some folks who I really wonder about that sometimes, by the way. You ever met somebody like that? You're like, I think you actually like being sad. That person's usually complaining when they talk to you, just so you know. John Piper used to say, and I'm sure still does, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And the reciprocal works too. God, or we are most satisfied in God when God is most glorified in us. You want the most joy you can possibly have? Glorify God the most you possibly can. But see, if that's the reason God calls you to obey, if you can obey so that you can have joy because that's the, the call of God on your life to glorify him, which gives you joy, then see, obedience, is e it's, it's not easy because life's hard and we're sinful, but obedience is, is something easy to be motivated toward because like when you're a kid and you were told to eat your greens and you didn't like them, your parents are like, that's good for you, eat them. But, but what if the thing that was good for you was also the thing that filled you with joy? Oh, baby, that's better than Brussels sprouts. It's good. What does it mean to glorify God? The Greek word for glory, it's a word that has built into its meaning the weightiness, the value, the, the gravity of the Lord. When God's glory is seen, those who see it grasp just a little something of the worth of God. They, they see that God is of greater gravity, greater import, greater worth than anyone or anything. All of creation rolled up together and squeezed into a ball could never come close to equaling the weight of the value of the God who made it. So for you and me to glorify God, what we do is we, we show for others to see, we show for the watching universe to see that God is number one. When you choose to obey the commands of God, even if the people around you think those commands are nuts, you show the world that God is worth more to you than their good opinion. When you set aside Sunday for the worship of the Lord, you show that God is worth more than a down day for you. 
when you forgive somebody who sinned against you because you want to look like Jesus, you show people that the glory of Jesus is worth more than you proving a point or getting your way. And you know what? When a Christian mom keeps her house as a way to honor God and to be hospitable, when she changes a diaper so she can fulfill her role as a mom, when she loves her husband, when she cares for the grandparents, when, when she does that stuff, because of the faith, she demonstrates the glory of Jesus and she demonstrates the fact that the Lord Jesus and his ways are worth more than selfishness. Christians, set at the center of who you are and how you live the glory of God. Live to show God's greatness. Turn from sin to show God's supremacy. Love doing good and loving others to show how good and how loving God is. Do this and God will fill you with the joy of doing what he created you for in the first place. Glorify your Savior. Okay, fifth point, last one. Submit to Scripture. Point number five, last point, submit to Scripture. Look at verse 15. It says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Just told you all, believe in Jesus, live a life that points to God, look forward to the return of Jesus, hope in Jesus, turn away from lawlessness, turn toward joyful good works for the glory of God. But let me ask a question. This is an important question. Says who? Under whose authority, Travis, are you telling me to do these things? Under whose authority can you tell me to think this way? Paul tells Titus, declare these things. That's verses 1 to 10 that he's supposed to declare, if nothing else, besides the gospel coming in verse 11 to 14. Declare these things, encourage people, rebuke people, which means correct them kind of sharply. And do it with all authority. Do not let anybody disregard the words that you have to say to them, Titus. Paul's giving Titus the authority to say what he's saying. But remember what we learned in chapter 1. Paul is an apostle. Paul is a man authorized by God to be sent out on mission for God. Paul is telling Titus that this stuff, it is real. And Paul knew when he wrote this letter to Titus, he knew it would be read. And he knew he was writing with God's authority. Paul knew he was writing Holy Scripture. And the letter of Paul to Titus finds its way into the biblical canon because as with all of the other books of the Bible, this is in fact divine revelation. God is speaking it. So who says we're supposed to do this stuff? God says we're supposed to do this stuff. How do we know? Because God kept it in the Word. God kept it in the Bible. The Bible is God's Word, perfect, inspired, authoritative. And when the Bible tells us to do a thing, we are to do that thing. Because what the Bible says, God says. So whether you're Christian or lost this day, you are to submit to the Bible because it's God's holy Word. And you are to obey the commands of God. 
God is speaking to you in this book. God has told you that Jesus is the grace of God who appeared to save all kinds of folks. And if you wish to be forgiven by God, you've got to be forgiven by grace through faith in Jesus. So believe in Jesus today. God commends it. And if you are saved, your salvation should lead to a life of obedience to the commands of God, to God's word. Set your mind on that great day when Jesus will return and reveal the glory of God to all. Look forward to heaven and let it cause you to live rightly in the here and now. God commands it. And since God created us for this task, Obeying God here, glorifying God with a sanctified life under a sanctified gospel, a sanctifying gospel. That, friends, will bring you joy. Let's pray together. Lord, it is good to have your word. It is good to have the chance to study and to hear the gospel again. I pray, dear Lord, that you in fact will accomplish your will in this body. Maybe someone heard this or will hear this who needs to be saved. I pray that they will be. Maybe someone heard this or will hear this who needs to repent of sin. I pray they will. Maybe someone hears this and they need to set their heart, their minds on things above and long for the glorious return, the glorious the appearing of the glory of our God and great Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that our hearts will in fact find hope there and comfort there, even as we live to your glory in the here and now. Father, work in your people and accomplish your will. Do mighty things. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen.